And I have spent the past three days, as was mentioned at the beginning of the service, three days, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, except the drive, with church planters, pastors, missionaries, faithful church members of whom the world is not worthy. Brothers and sisters, just like you and me, men like Matthew DeLauder of Emmanuel Community Church who is faithfully, along with his brothers and sisters, evangelizing the Gentilly and Treme neighborhoods of New Orleans. A five-year-old church with 62 members who this year has already sent out its first missionary, Cody Cunningham, to Kenya. And this same year is sending out a church planter, Andrew Hanna, to plant Harvest Church in another neighborhood of New Orleans. Women like Lisa Seitz, who when I was in fifth grade, was already laboring faithfully on the island of Sumatra, working to strengthen the native pastors and believers there, that it was their job to take the gospel to the lost Muslims, the millions who populated that island. Men like Brian Powell, who through much personal affliction and discouragement has seen Holy City Church of James Island this past year in the midst of a pandemic bring on a second full-time staff pastor, Drew McFarland, a faithful brother, a father in many ways in the faith and an excellent preacher to help share the pastoral load at Holy City Church. I wish that you could see these men and women face to face and that you could know that these great heroes of the faith are asking and inquiring about you. How are things at College Street? How are they doing? How can we pray for you? Seeking for your good, desperate for the Lord to prove himself faithful to the saints of College Street Baptist Church. And I am very grateful for that because in this season, I think the temptation for many of us is to drift. To drift away. And what we need when we are drifting and drifting away, what we need are brothers and sisters who are going to pray for us, pray with us, and who are also going to exhort us in the midst of whatever suffering or discouragement or despair we're experiencing not to drift away from the path of salvation. We're going to find very shortly that this is a recurring exhortation throughout the book of Hebrews. In the midst of suffering, the author of Hebrews exhorts us in the midst of discipline or discomfort or things that we wish would stop and the hand of God upon our life in a way that makes us feel very uncomfortable and unsure and uncertain, his exhortation to us is 
Don't let this cause you to drift and drift away. So let us return together to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, where we left off last week. If you recall from last week, there was a digression that happened in verse 1 of the second chapter where we left the main argument so that he could kind of smack us upside the head for a moment. He's in the middle, just in the, this is the beginning phase, his introduction, and he's just getting warmed up in his sermon, and he has to pause for a moment, and I'm not sure why. Maybe he thought we had too many cinnamon rolls that morning. Maybe we hadn't gotten enough sleep the night before. I'm guilty on both accounts, but he pauses mid-sermon, mid-chapter 2, verse 1, to say... Let's read it again together. It says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And the danger is not just that we might drift away into sleep as he's preaching. Before his sermon even manages to take flight, the danger that looms before you and I is that we would drift away spiritually. Not just into temporary sleep, but into eternal death. What is the thing that we're in such danger of drifting away from? Well, it's actually the last word that he says before he digresses at the end of chapter 1. What word is it there? Verse 14. Salvation. Salvation. It's sad, but for many Christians, that is the point where we turn our brains off. Whenever the pastor starts talking about salvation, oh yeah, I know all about that. Time to check out, time to drift off into thinking about schoolwork I've got this week, or something I need to get done at the workplace, or some errand I need to run later on, or some hilarious video I saw on YouTube. I know all this by heart, the cross, Jesus, etc., etc. Wake me up when we get to something practical. Wake me up when we get to something that actually deals with whatever I'm struggling with or suffering in my life today. The author of Hebrews is saying, salvation is not the signal word for the believer to tune out. When you hear the word salvation, that is the signal you need to tune in. Listen up. Don't drift away. We're about to talk about matters that deal with your eternal salvation. This is not a matter of what to buy at the grocery this afternoon or where we're going to go to lunch or what to wear to school. What we are about to dive into is a matter of where you will reside eternally, whether in the eternal torments of hell or the eternal joys of the presence of God. So don't drift away, the author of Hebrews says. I'm saying salvation, and I know what you're doing. Do not drift away now. I'm sure you've been in a public gathering before. Like, uh, for instance, I was at the Emmanuel Network, and there's hundreds of people that are all visiting with each other, and there's like a buzz in the atmosphere, and all of a sudden, you hear within earshot, somebody says your name. What do you do? Well, immediately, you perk up, and you listen, because you want to hear what they have to say about you. 
right? Well, when you hear at the end of chapter 1, those who are to inherit salvation, your ears should perk up because you realize, hey, he's talking about me. What does he have to say about me? Here's what he's saying about us. What feels like suffering in your life is actually salvation. This is the point that he digresses in order to grab us and get us back on track. He is about to convince us that suffering, being brought low spiritually, physically, emotionally, in every way, is the means by which God saves us eternally. What looks like suffering is actually the Lord ensuring that you and I inherit salvation. Well, how can we know that? The good news is, the author of Hebrews knows he's going to prove it to us, but we better listen up. He's going to prove it to us in three ways. Number one, suffering made Jesus our glorious king. Secondly, we're going to see suffering made Jesus our perfect brother. Third and finally, suffering made Jesus our merciful and faithful high priest. None of these things of which are all wrapped up in our eternal salvation, none of these things could have happened without suffering. So let's stand together as we read God's word and let us not drift away from the message we're about to hear. We're going to begin in verse 5 of chapter 2. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but... We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies... And those who are being sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it was not angels that he helped, but he helped the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered... When tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Amen. You may be seated.
So as I said, the author of Hebrews breaks off when he mentions the word salvation to make sure we're all on track with him. But then in verse 5, he picks up where he left off, and we can know that everything in verse chapter 2 and following is dealing with our eternal salvation, and it all is wrapped up in one particular man, Jesus Christ. When your uh, star quarterback goes down on the field after a play, what does everybody do? They hold their breath. Why is that? Well, because you know that if the captain goes down, the team's going down with him. You don't put any faith in the second string quarterback, right? No, you need the star captain, and when he goes down, the fate of the team hangs in the balance. But when you see him hoisted up off the ground, and he goes jogging to the sideline, and he claps to the crowd, everyone breathes a sigh of relief. Why? We're going to be just fine. We're still going to win because the captain is up. Well, that's what we're looking at when we look at the fate of Jesus. Verse 10, where it says that word founder, it really, if you were reading in the King James, is the word captain. The captain. When it comes to what Jesus suffered and we see in his life, Jesus Christ, our captain, went down hard. Crucifixion, buried in the ground. And in that moment, the whole of the cosmos was holding its breath. What's going to happen? Because the fate of this universe hangs on this one captain. But praise God, he got back up. In fact, God raised him up raised him up forever, and our salvation is secure forever. Well, what the author of Hebrews wants us to realize is that this suffering, this going down hard of Jesus, this being made a little lower than the angels for a little while, was not some detour in the plan of God. This was his plan all along, and that is why he quotes to us from Psalm 8. Verse 7 is quoting from a psalm in the Old Testament. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Verse 8, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And then skip down to verse 9. He directly applies this Old Testament verse and says it's talking about Jesus. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for every one. So what the author of Hebrews is saying is this suffering of Jesus was not some detour on the way to salvation. It was the plan of salvation all along. Verse 9 tells us, Jesus, the Son of Man, was crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering. So this is our first point this morning. Suffering made Jesus our glorious King. Jesus wears the crown of glory and honor because 
who suffered. This is what was foretold a thousand years before by the psalmist in the Old Testament, the king who would rule over every created thing to whom God had planned to subject everything in the universe would wear a crown of suffering on the day of his coronation. On that dark Friday, what the Roman soldiers meant as his humiliation, God meant as his exaltation. When they put that crown of thorns on his head and when they mockingly draped that royal robe on his shoulder and they put that stick in his hand and they all, in sarcasm, bowed their knees before him. And when they beat him and whipped him and spit on him and stripped him and nailed him to a cross and suspended his dying body between heaven and earth, all the powers of darkness meant to lay him low. But the author of Hebrews says something sensational happened in that moment. What they meant for intense humiliation and suffering was actually the crowning of Jesus Christ. The suffering was his crown of glory and honor. And how can we miss it? The message is literally posted there on the tree above his head so that all people, man, woman, and child, can read what's going on here on the cross. King of the Jews. Suffering made Jesus our glorious king. When we behold Jesus on the cross, we behold not a man in humiliation, but a man in his great exaltation. He didn't become king after the suffering of his death. He was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of his death. He was made for a short while a little lower than the angels because the cross was the place where Jesus collected his crown. See, as the Son of God, Jesus was already the glorious King of the universe. He didn't need to endure all of this in order to become King. He already sat on a throne in heaven. Everything already was subjected to Him. In fact, everything was made through Him and for Him. So why did He walk this path of suffering? So that He could do it not only as the Son of God, but as the Son of Man. God has not planned to subject this universe to spiritual beings or to angels, the author of Hebrews says. He was intended from the beginning and to the end for this universe to be ruled by a human, a flesh and blood man. Verse 6. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? God is mindful and has in his mind the desire to restore the rank and the place of man whom he created as glorious king. And how has he done it? He has done it in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, brothers and sisters, this may be the hardest thing for us to receive. If suffering has made Jesus our glorious king, then the same is true for you and I. 
God has foreordained before the foundation of the world, the author of Hebrews says, that we should inherit salvation, which means one day we will sit on the throne with Jesus. But for a little while, we have to stoop below the angels. For a little while, we have to endure the suffering. Why? Because we have to stoop to pick up our crown. Not forever. For a little while. But when we come through the other side, when we make it, and we emerge through the grave, we will be crowned with Jesus Christ because of our suffering, not despite it. Romans 8. We are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. Why? In order that we may also be glorified with him. Suffering made Jesus our glorious king. Secondly, as we are being convinced that what feels and looks like suffering in our life is actually God saving us eternally, the second thing we have to realize as we look at Jesus is that suffering made him our perfect brother. We see this in verse 10. Let's look at it together. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect, through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. So the author of Hebrews is telling us what God is doing in causing his own son to suffer is that he is turning Jesus into our perfect brother. That's what's taking place. God in bringing all his children into his glorious presence and into his family had to make Jesus, the Son of God, into our brother. If we're going to share one father, then we have to be brothers with one another and brothers with Jesus Christ. God doesn't have grandsons. He only has sons. So if Jesus is the Son of God, and we're to become the Son of God, sons and daughters of God, then somehow God has to make Jesus our perfect brother. And that happens, the author of Hebrews says, through suffering. Imagine if you were a miner, coal miner, let's say, and you and all your buddies are down at the bottom of the mine and there's a cave-in. And you have, you know that there's 24 hours, you know the canaries are starting to bite the dust and you realize, we have a very short amount of time before we're going to breathe our last and we're going to die as well. And you're getting radioed from a guy who's up higher in the cave and he's spearheading the effort and he's saying, don't worry, we're almost there, we're going to make it. We're going to do our best to dig these rocks out and get them removed and we're going to make a pathway for you to make it back to the surface. Just hold on. They're digging down and they're digging down. What if they only almost cleared a path for you? Would that be of any help? They almost made it. You could almost even hear them on the other side of the giant boulder that's blocking your path. Would you be saved? Would there be any pathway of salvation for you? No. You 
And all your brothers would die down there in the bottom of that mine. The rescuer has to make it all the way down. He has to remove every single boulder from the path if he's going to come down and lead you out. He has to sink into the very depth of the mind to where he is standing with you face to face. And then he can say to you, I've got a way out. There is a pathway of salvation open for you. Now friends, that is exactly what Jesus Christ has done for us. Jesus is no help to us if we're all going into the grave and Jesus only makes it halfway or most of the way down into the grave. There's no pathway to salvation until Jesus comes and becomes a human brother with us and can enter that grave with us so that he can bring us out. He has to join us in death, but the thing is, the pathway of salvation, the journey out of the grave, Jesus has to travel down into the grave. And what is that pathway? It's suffering. It's suffering. Suffering is the tunnel by which Jesus descends to the very bottom and joins us as our perfect brother in the grave. He has to become like us in every way. Join us in the tomb itself so that he can lead us back out of it. It was fitting, the author of Hebrews says in verse 10, for the Son of God to suffer. That's how he became our brother. Suffering befits the Son of God. He had to tunnel in in order to tunnel us out. And the tunnel was suffering. And you may be thinking to yourself, this is not good news because if the way in was suffering for Jesus, then the way out is the same way he got in. It's going to be suffering for me and I do not like where this is headed. Brothers, we have to realize the truth. Before our brother Jesus joined us in the tomb, we were in the deepest, darkest cave imaginable. We were dead in the grave. And the truth of the matter is, wherever Jesus leads us, the only way we can go is up. I think the problem is that we think the wrong things are suffering. Look at verse 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook in the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver, this is this, salvation that we've been talking about, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You want to talk about true suffering, let's talk about living your entire life in the fear of death and lifelong slavery to the devil himself. That, that is true suffering. Fleeting, temporary pain in your life leading to eternal life, that, that's not suffering, that is salvation. But thanks be to God the Father that when we are having a hard time and we're experiencing the pinch and the pain of suffering in our life and we're in the midst of that affliction, we can hear a brother singing next to us. Look at that. Verse 12. This is Jesus saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. 
And what is the song that Jesus, along this path of suffering, leads us to sing? What's the chorus that he is telling us? I know this is hard. I know it feels hopeless. But here's what we're going to sing together. I will put my trust in him. Jesus is singing that right along with us because he, through his suffering, has become our perfect brother. Friend, if you are suffering, the last thing you need to do is to drift away from the congregation of your brothers and sisters. The last thing you should let despair and grief and suffering do is allow you to fall away from this path. Jesus, your perfect brother, has come and he's come into the congregation and he says to us, you can trust him. It won't be long now. I, your flesh and blood brother, have poured out my blood for you and I promise what feels like suffering today will prove to be salvation tomorrow. You just got to trust him. You just got to trust the Lord. What feels like pain is actually freedom. Don't be afraid. Sin no longer has dominion over you. You do not have to fear death and the devil and the grave. Anyone who would do evil or have evil intentions towards you has been completely overpowered. Suffering has made me your perfect brother. Let's walk this path together. Friends, we become brothers with Christ when we are willing to suffer with him. We become brothers and sisters with one another whenever we suffer alongside each other. But consider the glorious results of Christ's suffering. The path that Jesus walked in suffering led to perfection. So, brothers and sisters, let us congregate along the path. Let us sing and encourage one another even as Christ our captain leads us because suffering has made Jesus our perfect brother. Finally and quickly, number three, suffering has also and finally made Jesus our merciful and faithful high priest. Verse 16. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. When we read the Gospels and we look at the ministry of Jesus before he gets to the cross, we actually get a foretaste of uh, the propitiation that is the atoning sacrifice that he's going to make for the sins of the people. And uh, actually, we can appreciate uh, what Jesus has accomplished as our high priest even more after the year that we've just had with all of the contact tracing and social distancing and mask wearing and uh, sanitizing. All these efforts to slow the spread because when you contact with somebody who's sick, what happens to you? You get sick some of the time. You get contaminated. Whenever you come into close contact, you touch someone who's sick, now you're sick. Jesus comes into the world and he touches lepers, but he doesn't become leprous. They become clean. He lays his hands 
on the sick, and he doesn't become sick, the sick become well. He, our holy priest, makes contact, joins the race of flesh and blood men, and rather than becoming contaminated by our sin, his holy flesh makes us holy. This is why he came in flesh and blood among his brothers, so that by joining us in flesh and blood, we might join him in holiness. And this particular process of becoming our high priest, as we've said with the previous two points, there was a means by which this took place. Verse 18 tells us, for because he himself has suffered. That's how it happened. That's how he became our high priest. It was through this same conduit of suffering. I found great comfort this week and all that Jesus endured in order to become our, uh, our high priest. Look at verse 17 again. I want to point something out here. It says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. And you might read that passage, or maybe you've read it in the past, and you thought, well, you know, Jesus had to become a human so that he could understand us, so that he could know what it's like to suffer as a person. Know what it's like to be flesh and blood and to suffer temptation so that on the other end of becoming a human, Jesus might then be able to be merciful and faithful to us. Once Jesus knew what our struggles really felt like and had experienced pain and suffering as a human, then he would know how to become merciful. Then he would know how to become faithful to us. Brothers and sisters, nothing could be further from the truth. The mercy and the faithfulness of our Lord have never, not one day, not one hour, not even for a second, been in doubt. When the Lord God passes Moses on the mountain and he proclaims his own name, this is what we hear. The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You see, the Son of God is merciful and faithful by nature eternally. He did not need to become human in order to sympathize with what we feel. He knows all of it exactly and perfectly. He did not need to become human so that then he would learn how to become compassionate toward us. He perfectly knows our weakness, our suffering, and our state without becoming human. That's not what this is all about. The problem for us is that the abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, Son of God, is of no benefit to us if he cannot become our high priest. His mercy has no outlet toward us. His faithfulness has no benefit if he is not our qualified representative before God. He had to become human in order to represent humans in the presence of God. You see, a high priest functions like an ambassador. Okay, so just imagine, I don't know the name of this person, but let's say the U.S. ambassador to China. What is their job? Well, it's to go into the courts 
of the Chinese premier and to represent the intentions of the United States, the people of the United States of America. But there is one condition that U.S. ambassador has to be a U.S. citizen. We don't send someone from Italy or Africa or some other nation to go and represent the interests of the United States. We send one of our own. It's the same with Jesus. He cannot represent us in the courtroom of God and offer a sacrifice for the forgiveness of the sins of humans without himself first being a human. And that meant being brought low for a little while. That meant suffering. Suffering makes Jesus our merciful and faithful high priest. Second problem is that our sins against an eternal God call out for a human death. Our sins could not be wiped away without the sacrifice of human blood, without the offering up of human flesh. And we really needed a human sacrifice of eternal quality because we have sinned against an eternal God. That is what that long Bible word in our text, propitiation, is all about. That's the word we use for all of the suffering that our merciful and faithful high priest endured in order to be able to offer up his own human flesh and his own human blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Then, and only then, after all of that suffering, could he be our glorious king, our perfect brother, and our merciful and faithful high priest. The good news, the author of Hebrews says, is that we have suffering to thank for the help that Jesus gives us when we feel tempted. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help us for those who are being tempted. I don't know what temptations you may be facing in your life. Temptations to doubt or despair. Tempted to maybe take the matters of your life or of your circumstances into your own hands and not to trust God to do his will. The good news of the gospel is that the suffering of Christ brings us help. Suffering brings us the help of the Lord of the universe. And often that help comes to us through another brother or sister. Someone who is suffering with us or has suffered in a similar way. Because through suffering, we also become high priests to one another. Giving and receiving the steadfast love and faithfulness that we have received from Jesus. So let us not be afraid. Suffering has made Jesus our glorious king, our perfect brother, and our merciful and faithful high priest. However you or I may feel today, this much is true. What feels like suffering is actually your eternal salvation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for everything you willingly endured in order to save us. Forgive us for our unbelief. Help us to trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. We're going to sing a fitting hymn number 410 in your hymnal. Let's sing together. It is well. <clears throat>